So our first scripture reading this morning is Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing the praises of my God all my life long. Do not put your trust in princes and mortals in whom there is no help. When their breath departs, they return to the earth. On that very day, their plans perish. Happy are those who, whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord their God who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those that are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over strangers. He upholds the orphan and the widow, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. The word of God for the people of God. All right, our second scripture reading is from the book of Ruth, right at the beginning. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of their two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephraim, uh, yeah, Ephrathah, Ephrathah, I thought it was Ephraimites, but it is not. Ephratites uh, of the Bethlehem, uh, from Bethlehem in Judah. They were into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she left, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. When they lived there about ten years, both Malon and Chilion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law to the from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of your house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Then she wept aloud, then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. 
Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do thus, and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. Our gospel reading today is the gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verse 28 through 34. Again, that's the gospel of Mark. I'm repeating that so I can get there. The gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verse 28 through 34. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked them all, which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment that is greater than these. And then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. And besides him, there is no other. And to love him with all your heart, with your understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. There is, more import, there is much more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to them, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Here, I'm going to let you know that. The word of God for the people of God. Sorry, I forgot it. Corey told me I forgot it. So having two preachers and speakers in a home carries both some unique challenges and some unique advantages that we weren't really anticipating at the beginning. One of the unique advantages that we have is that we often write portions of each other's sermons. That's a secret for you guys. Um, in previous weeks, I've read over some of Corey's work and said, you need to emphasize this or maybe focus a little bit more on that or this needs to be explained a little more or no one knows that word. Please tell me what it means. Um, and so, sorry, it's true. So I asked him to clarify those things, but he's done the same thing for me. He's read some of my stuff and written some whole paragraphs on my behalf, but it also has some challenges. Um, one is that Corey and I look at speaking slightly differently. Um, Corey preaches more like FDR's fireside chat, but with a theologian. Um, and I'm more like typical Baptist preacher minus, you know, hellfire and brimstone. But if you give me, you know, three points and an altar call, I'll take that any day. That's how I, that's how I've always liked to do. So when we both read the text for this week, Corey's initial reaction was, oh, it's the greatest commandment. It's the greatest commandment week. It's such an easy point to communicate. You're going to have such an easy time. You're going to have a fun time. That's what he told me. And I read the text for this week, and I thought, how do you preach the greatest commandment? <laughs> these people have heard these texts their whole lives. What more can I extrapolate? What new ideas can be garnered, and what can I possibly have to say to them? But in my meditation time this week, as I looked over it some more, I realized or remembered that my job is never to reinvent the wheel, and that the likelihood of any of you remembering the words of a sermon a month from now is probably low. So that's just any, that's how it works. Homiletics teachers will always teach you that. They're not going to remember what you say a month from now. So what we need to do this morning is together we're not trying to find a new truth, but we're trying to proclaim a timeless truth together. 
And so that's what I want to do this morning. So we begin with the Gospel of Mark. Every week for the last couple of weeks, we begin with some person trying to ask questions of Jesus, right? And so in this text, uh, it's the Pharisees or the disciples or whoever. They're trying to ask something that traps Jesus, right? But in the conversation this week, we have the scribe that comes in. And the scribes appear throughout the gospel, but this is the only story in the gospel where it's not in a negative light. It's the first positive scribe we have in all of the gospel. And this scribe is our happy exception, and he comes to Jesus, and he knows that Jesus has answered his opponents well already. That's how he comes to Jesus. He comes to Jesus after the Sadducees have tried to stump Jesus with the question about the resurrection in which they do not believe. Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection at all. And there's a strong possibility that this scribe is actually a Pharisee. I don't know why they just call him a scribe, but he's probably a Pharisee. And Pharisees do believe in the resurrection. So you could probably say that this Pharisee is pleased with how Jesus has treated the Sadducee already. He's like, well, I could tell this guy doesn't like the Sadducees. Maybe me and him can be friends. Like that's kind of how he comes to it. Because the Pharisees and Sadducees weren't on the best terms. And then the scribe asks this very important question. Which commandment is the greatest of all? And unlike most stories where a religious official is asking Jesus' question to trap him, this seems to be just an honest, sincere guy. He just wants to know. The scribe is not saying which commandment is the first of many in a list, but rather which commandment defines all of Torah law? What stands at its center? What summarizes it? Is there one law that is the key to all these laws? Because Jewish law includes 613 commandments, right? It has 365 prohibitions. It has 248 positive commandments, whatever that. I, don't, I, I still don't, can't compute what that means exactly, but they're positive commandments. And the scribes, even then, they divided these into light and heavy commandments. And the light commandments were less important and the heavy ones were more important. And so the scribe's job was to examine each law in minute detail and devise complex rules on how to help people understand how to obey each and every law because there was such vastness in the law, right? So they tried to boil it down even then. Some of the scribes at the time had said that it was Micah. In, the, in, the, in Micah 6, 8, it says, does Yahweh, what does Yahweh require of you but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? They're like, maybe that's what it is. Maybe if you boiled it all down, it's just that little verse from Micah. And then Hillel comes in. He was a Jewish guy at that time, well, a little after. But anyway, he said, what you hate for yourself, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law, and the rest is commentary. I kind of like that. But that was him trying to summarize the vastness of Jewish law. So you have the scribe that comes up and says, Jesus, I just want you to summarize this vastness of Jewish law. Tell me what exactly I need to do. And Jesus says this, the greatest is here Israel, the Lord, our God, is one. That's what he says at first. And that's verse 29. And this account also happens in the book of Matthew in 23, in the book of Luke in chapter 10. But it doesn't include this portion of the verse. But it's very important, and I'm glad that Mark includes it. The fact that the Lord is one adds weight to the call to love God. And the Jews referred to this little portion of scripture as the Shema, which means to hear. 
and it comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, the Shema is regularly, still currently, recited in synagogue worship and in daily prayers. The scriptures are actually written in phylacticaries, which is a small container you've probably seen your Jewish friends wear around their neck. Or that's what actually goes in mezuzahs. I mean, you've seen, I'm sure, on top of Jewish people's homes, those little containers that they stick on the wall. They, they put Deuteronomy 6 through 4, which is the Shema. They put it on the doorpost of the house as a constant reminder. And in reciting the Shema, Jesus goes to the Torah, right? To the core of Jewish faith and practice. Jesus uses it to introduce the commandment to love God. But the Shema itself is not a commandment, but instead establishes this foundation for us. A foundation of the commandment to love God. But what it did for that scribe in that moment was it immediately found common ground with the scribe. When Jesus spoke that Shema, it connected with what we could even perceive as the arch nemesis to the narrative of Jesus in Scripture, right? You have the Pharisees, which in our mind is someone that bumps, bumps up against the ways of Jesus. And what Jesus did is he said, you know what, I'm going to say things that are going to put us on the same playing field. I'm going to put us, I'm going to see where we can connect. I'm going to find our common ground here. Jesus decided to start in a place where he knew that they would agree. Before we can ever start the conversation about loving God and loving our neighbors, we have to be able to see other people just like us. We have to be able to say, there is no person on earth that I don't have something in common with. There is no person on earth that I can't find common ground in Christ with. And I'm guilty of this. This is a thing that I, that's a thing that I struggle with at times. Most of you know that I'm taking classes at Northwest currently. And because of this, I am in situations more often than not where I feel like the only adults in the room. Uh, these kids, I say kids, they're probably kids. Anyway, most of them are more than 15 years younger than me, right? Um, and so they're just younger. So I try to like get my backpack, keep my head down, uh, take my classes and go home. I'm not there to make friends. I'm not there to hang out. I don't sit around and do things after class. I'm not in all the clubs. I don't do that. I just take my classes and I go home. This week, one of those younger girls friended me on Facebook, which I thought was odd. Um, one, I didn't know she knew my name. But anyway, I thought it was odd. And so it's Halloween night. My phone buzzes and Ashley and Shelby are standing next to me. And I said, I don't really want to be this girl's friend. Like, I don't know why she thinks. Like, I don't, we're not going to be friends. Um... And we have nothing in common except maybe our major. And I don't know what's going on here, but I don't, I don't know. This feels weird to me. She's just so much younger than me. Uh, and I had a really just negative, bad attitude, just to be honest. I had a bad attitude about it. I had a really bad attitude. Then a message pops up, like, because you have to friend somebody on Facebook to send them a message, right? Then a message pops up on my phone, and it said, hey, girl, I just wanted you to know that um, geography class is canceled tomorrow, 11-1, so you might not want to show up. So she was being really nice to me. She didn't have to do that, right? Like she was being so kind for no reason. She sought me out, found my name, looked me up, and then and sent me this message. And I had a horrible attitude about it because I thought that we, there was just nothing I could have in common with a 17-year-old girl from Senatobia. But this is a small situation, right? It's a small situation in my life. But as many of you know, in our lives, we can easily dismiss people. 
whether it be their age, like I did with this girl, or their race, or their economic status, or they just don't feel like we would connect with them, we push past them and say, it's not that I don't like them, but I just don't think we have anything in common. It's not that I don't like them, I just don't think we would connect, right? But nothing could be further from the truth. By virtue of the gospel, we can find common ground with anyone who is made in the image of Christ, which is everyone, which is all people. Jesus goes from the Shema to the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all you got, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then seemingly without taking a breath, he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. As if to express to both the scribe and to us this morning that you can't have one without the other. That there's no dividing these two facts. There's not two greatest commandments, it's one. We studied James not too long ago in Sunday school and from this pulpit. And it was James that said faith without works is dead. And we can argue whether or not we think that means without works you can't have faith or faith or all those things. But to me what I always gathered from James is that the fruit of faith is works. That the fruit of faith is always works. And that's what I feel like Jesus is telling us here, is that the fruit of loving the creator God is the fruit of loving the creation of God. That all humans are made in the very image of God, and the more that we love the creator, we love his creation. That's the fruit of the gospel. Now maybe it's not, maybe it's the other way around for you, right? Maybe you find that neighbor love a little easier than love of God. Some people do. Or maybe you have been trying to show somebody that you know the ways of Jesus, and they just aren't there yet. They can't figure this thing out, right? They can't figure out how to love God. And it's an okay place to be. That's what I tell the youth kids all the time. Wherever you are, that's an okay, that's an okay place to be. We can navigate this. Because the greatest commandment has an answer for that this morning, too. If we can't find God, start with the second half. Start by loving your spouse a little more, or your kids a little more, or that neighbor next door. Then expand to that guy that bugs you at work. That Work on that loving that guy, that guy that's really annoying and you can't stand. Work on loving that guy, right? Work on loving those people that no one else seems to find time to love. Find an act of service. Start by opening up your wallet. Start by giving to those that don't deserve it. Love your neighbor. If you can't love God, love your neighbor. I think of Alcoholics Anonymous a lot. I'm going to uncover my sermon illustration. If not, uh, I don't know if any of you um, might find I'll get to here, but this is poker chips on the communion table, and I'm sorry about that. But um, we'll get there in just a minute. But um, I think of Alcoholics Anonymous a lot when I think about this part about service is love. Uh, the gift of service is one of the main tenets of AA. My dad was in recovery for almost 20 years before he passed, and I spent a lot of time in the rooms of AA. That's what they call it, in the rooms. It's just from where I was, it was just a, a double-wide trailer, but, you know, wherever it is. In the rooms of AA, I spent a lot of time there. And I remember veteran AA folks, people that had a lot of years, telling those new guys that even if you just show up early to make the coffee, it's important to love others through service. And the longer folks stay in recovery, the more that service grows from sponsorship or mentorship to if you were anything like the guys I knew growing up, they ended up, 
you know, pulling over on the side of the road and picking up a drunk hitchhiker and taking them to meetings because it's service that's important. Because when you take your eyes off of yourself and onto assisting others, we find the hope and love of neighbor that is promised in the gospel. Because this commandment is circular. When I begin to love people that were made in the image of God, that's when I find God. And when I love God and pursue the Messiah with all that I have and with my whole heart, I find a deep need and a deep desire to love those around me. And when we mess up and slip up, like I did that this week, and we have callousness of heart, we don't just say, I'm not good at this loving my neighbor thing. It's not who I am. That's not what we do. We don't absolve ourselves from trying because we're not good at it. No, we repent. And to continue my AA analogy, we pick up a white chip. I don't know if any of you are familiar with AA at all, but white chip is the chip that you pick up. It's a 24-hour chip. It's a, I fell off the wagon. I need to try this again. I might not be good at it, but I want to keep trying. I want to keep working at this, and I haven't given up. We try again and again and again, and if we fail, we try again. Because if this is the greatest commandment, let's not give up. Let's keep trying. Now, this may be AA folklore, or it may be the truth, but it works today, so we're going to go with it. But I was always told that the reason that the white chip was a 24-hour chip, the starting over chip, is because poker sets, which is where all chips actually come from. They're not fancy. It's just poker sets. Because in poker sets, the white chip is the dollar chip. It's the cheapest chip. It's the one that they used to just have the most of in the set. And so when they used the one they had the most of as the starting over chip, as a signal to everybody and because they needed it, that there's never a limit on starting over. There's always room for more. We're going to continually have access to a white chip because if you need to start over, you never run out of chances. We get to try again and again. It's the greatest commandment. So let's not give up. If all the law and the prophets hinge on these things, we can boil everything down to loving our neighbor. Then let's not grow weary in doing good. Let's continue to love our neighbor, our black neighbor, our white neighbor, our Hispanic neighbor, our gay neighbor, our straight neighbor, our Republican neighbor, our Democrat neighbor, our poor neighbor, our homeless neighbor, our rich neighbor, our neighbors. May we persistently pursuing loving Jesus. And may we persistently pursue loving like Jesus until we all see Jesus face to face. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you.